First John 4. You ever notice when you talk to people, um, you, can, you can really tell what's most important in their life. So like, I have a bunch of friends, sometimes I get together with them, and they're always talking about hunting. And I just know that hunting is a big part of their life, because that's what they talk about all the time, hunting or fishing or different things like that. We all have those conversations from time to time. Sometimes it might be cars, hot rods, it might be uh, work, it might be cooking, it might be a, a whole variety of things. But you know that when you sit and talk with somebody, if, if they're always going back to something, you know that that's very important in their life, correct? Well, John, and I was thinking about this this last week in the First John, he talks a lot about love. And actually, if you read the Gospel of John, he also talks a lot about love. And so I sort of deduce this, that love is very important to John. And it's like our kids. When we raise our kids, sometimes we want to reiterate things to them until they get it. So we're teaching them things, and we teach it over and over and over and over again until, ah, they finally got it. And when they got it, we just get happy about that. Well, I think that's what John is doing with us, is that he's trying to teach us about love. Because one thing that Christians don't do very well is love. They don't show love. They don't walk in love. And this love is an agape love, and so this love is, a, is an unconditional love. So, you know, we got the physical love, right, between a husband and a wife. We have a family love. These are my children. This is my, my cousins. This is my no-good brother-in-law. They're family. We love them, right? And then we, we also have brotherly love, good friends. We got good friends, and, and I really love them. But those loves are things that we can generate. We, we can have those in, in great proportions. We can have those in, in smaller proportions in our life. Okay, so we can choose uh, not to love a friend. We can choose, you know, even with family members. Sometimes, as, as, as harsh as it seems, there's dysfunction in families where sometimes they alienate from one another. And so those are, those are loves that, that we can sort of perpetuate in our life. The agape love we cannot do ourselves. We can talk about it, we can try to do it, but most of those other loves are all conditional. So we can say to our friends, as long as you treat me well, I'll treat you well. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And sometimes we even do that with family. Now, they don't come visit me, I'm not going to go visit them. Okay, so we got conditions on those things. Agape love is a non-conditional love that God has given us. It's a love that we give expecting nothing in return. It's the most beautiful thing, if you can really wrap your mind around it, it's the most beautiful thing that we can do in life. And I believe it's really the, the power of God in our life. So verse 12 tells us this. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So we see God through the evidence of love in our life. You know, Jesus says in one of the, the Gospels, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Well, was Jesus saying that God the Father looks like God the Son? Physical body in this? Well, no, we know not, because the Bible says God the Father is spirit, right? God is spirit. Jesus came fully man and fully God, but what he says is I'm reflecting God the Father. So when he's saying, 
when you see me, you see the Father. It's not the physical image that we're talking about in the scriptures there, but it's the characteristics of God. The way that Jesus treated people, the way that Jesus talked to people, the way that Jesus handled situations, I just think it's amazing. If you ever want to know like how to deal with people, read the Gospels. Look at how Jesus treated people, because we are far from that in the world today. We wonder why people don't come to church, because we don't treat people the way that Jesus treats people. And so he had this love for us. And, and when we look at this thing, the greatest evidence that Jesus had that he was of the Father was his love for others. And so today my challenge is going to be this, is that when you look at your life, your spiritual life, I want you to look at, at your foundation. Because for some of you, your foundation is legalism. For some of you, your foundation is rules. Some foundation is selfishness. They want their agenda, their way, the things they want. John is saying that our foundation needs to be the love of Christ. It needs to be the source for everything we do. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians 13 in a little bit. And it talks about all these things. It talks about, you know what? I can have faith that can move a mountain. I can prophesy. I can exercise my gifts. I can have all these things. But he says, if I don't have love, he says, I'm just an out-of-tune instrument in God's band. And so love needs to be the foundation of all that we do. And it's really the proof of existence of God in our lives. They will know we are Christians by our love. Many times Jesus has said, they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say, they'll know you're my disciples if you can quote scripture. They won't say that they'll know you're my disciples if, if you carry this version of the Bible or, or quote this Bible commentary, man. He says, they will know you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. So nobody has seen God at any time. So how does the world see God in today's world? He's going to see it through you. He's going to see it through you and through you. People can see God through us and not to equate us by any means with Jesus, but when we are born again, when we have God's Holy Spirit in us, he has given us the ability to have the characteristics of God in our life. So when people look at us, they see something unique. They see something different. They see a glimpse of God in our life. And I want people in my life not just to see a glimpse of God. I want, I want people to see God. I want them to see the work that he's doing and, and the love that he can show and the grace and the mercy and, and, and how I treat others. Because there's people that think like the greatest evidence of, of uh, God in a person's life is, is power. Well, I got this power. I have this authority. I have this. But that's not it. You know, there was times in the Gospels when we read through Jesus seemed weak and lacking in power. We know he wasn't. He was fully God. We know he's fully man. But he seemed that way at, at times where he was weak and lacking power. But he was always full of love. Some people might think that popularity is, is a sign of, of God's uh, presence in a person's life. Look at how many followers they have. Look at how big their congregation is. Look at you know how many... Uh, tweets he receives or whatever in this, this modern age. But there's times in the scriptures where Jesus, not that he wasn't popular, he was very unpopular in the Bible. 
but he was always full of love. Sometimes we think it's passionate feelings. Oh, I believe this, and, and I feel this way, and I got all these emotions, and, and man, I can cry at these songs, and I can get excited and raise my hands at these things. And we think, well, that's evidence of, of God in our life. But sometimes in the scriptures, Jesus didn't inspire passionate feelings. Sometimes he did. Sometimes he drew hatred. Sometimes he drew resentment. Sometimes he drew great love. But sometimes he didn't draw any patient, passionate feelings, but still there was love. The greatest evidence of God's presence and work in our life is that love that we show one another. It's something that, that as Christians we wrestle with because we wrestle with our, our flesh nature, what we want, and we wrestle with God's nature and what he desires. But for Jesus, love was the constant. And he says it should be in our life. That's what John is teaching us. That's why he keeps regurgitating this. I mean, we're, we're coming to the end of chapter 4, and for four verses, he's been talking about having this agape love in our life. It's the greatest evidence of the presence of God in our life and the work of Jesus Christ in what he did at the cross. If we love one another, it says then the love of God matures in us. They use the word perfected in here, but it really means to be mature or to complete itself in us. Is the agape love in your life, is that complete? Is it, is it full and mature? Verses 13 on, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So in the Gospel of John 15.4, it tells us this, Abide in me, and I in you. We can see a discourse with Jesus, with the Father, saying, Father, just as I abide in you, and you in me, I want them to abide in us too. Paraphrase. He says, I want them to abide in us. I want this this." Nature of us to flow through my disciples, to flow through my people, to be lived out in the world in such a way that it draws people unto you. Two verses later in 1570 says, If you abide in me, my word abides in you. So we know also that when Jesus abides in us or when he is alive in us and when he is living in us, it is through his word. It tells us that the word of God is wise to make us unto salvation. It says the word of God is, is good for reproof and correction. It's there to guide our lives. It's there to answer our problems. It's there to show us our shortcomings. And John is really telling us until we stop and look at ourselves and stop looking at others, we're never going to mature. We're never going to reach the destination where God would have us to be in this life. John declares three essential truths in the scripture I just read there about how he saves us. And we've talked about these over the last couple weeks. That the Father has sent the Son. We spent last week's message on that. He sent the Son of God to us. 
Not that we deserved it, not that we had anything redeemable in us that, that could say, he has to do this. It says, why our hearts were dark and black. Why we were enemies of the cross of Christ. God sent his son. That whosoever believes. The interesting thing about whosoever is it's just that. Anybody. Whosoever. So he sent. The Father sent the Son. We believe, by the way, in one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are one, but they got three distinct personalities. So when I'm talking about the Father and the Son, some religions believe in different gods or they believe morphing happens. We believe in one God present in three people. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But he sent Jesus, and Jesus was the Savior of the world. The world wants us to believe that there's many paths to heaven. There's many paths to nirvana. There's many paths to eternal life. There's Buddha. There's prayer. There's good intentions. There's works. There's Allah. There's this. There's that. The Bible declares there's one name under heaven in which you must be saved. That's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by him. So he declares that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then he says this, that knowing and understanding Jesus. So how do we get to know and understand Jesus? Is the foundation for abiding in him. So how do we get to know Jesus? Is it just hearing what other people have to say? Is it just by prayer? No. You know, God gives us the word of God. He gives us this thing called the Bible that we need to look at. You know, there's a lot of good commentators out there. I read a lot of them, and I'm going to even quote a couple of them today. But there are those that actually put commentators above the word of God. Or they grasp onto the commentator just as strongly as they do the word of God. That's a mistake. It doesn't say that a commentary is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We need to read the word of God. We need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us and teach us all things. Because even through a message, I'm a man. I'm a man that is declaring what I believe God's word to say. But you don't take it as gospel because I'm declaring it. You need to read the word yourself. You need to pick up your Bible and open it up. You should be taking your, your bullets at home and seeing what the scriptures are and reading through those and even reading ahead for the next week so you know what God's word says. So we need to know and understand Jesus because that's the real foundation for abiding in him. So if I wanted to know what makes my wife happy, I spent a lot of time, still do, sort of observing her, listening to her, trying to figure that out, right? Okay, I know this doesn't work very well, but I know this does. And so when we look towards God, we do the same thing. I want to be pleasing in his sight. I want to live for him. I know I have my agenda. I know I have my thoughts and and the ways that I think I should go, but the Bible warns me about that. There is a way that seems right unto the man, and its end is destruction. And most of us walk in that destructive path. We're not leaning on the, the Holy Spirit. We're not following God. We have what we want, and that's the route 
that we go. Marshall says this, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is not simply to make a statement about his metaphysical status, but to express obedient trust in the one who possesses such a status. Obedient trust, obedience, walking in his way. There's a lot of people that say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I go to church. It's not just that. It's walking in obedient trust. I know what God's word says. I know people that can quote scripture. I know people that, that sound really holy. Like they, like they really know what they're all about. But the love of God is not right in their heart. They're not following what God's word says. And the Bible warns about that. With their mouth they use great swelling words. But their heart is far from me. You honor me with your lips. But your heart isn't right. See, God challenges us on those things. Boyce says this, to believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not conditions by which we may dwell in God, but rather are the evidences of the fact that God has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible. Some of us think, well, I've got I to show love to this person, and, and then that, that shows everybody that you know I'm abiding in God. But do you understand that God initiates everything in our life? So Boyce is really saying this, that, that when we love the brethren, it's a sign that God is in control of our life. When we show love towards one another, it's the evidence that God is at work in our life, that he has possession of us, not that we make the effort to show that we are in his response. 16 goes on to tell us, and we have known and believed the love of God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So he says this agape love, this unconditional love, this love that gives without expecting anything in return. When we have this, when we are walking in this thing, it says that that's really what God is. That is the characteristic of God. God is a God that loves giving without expecting in return. He desires, but he doesn't expect. He didn't send Jesus to the cross, saying, well, now I've gone to the cross, so you have to do this. No, because Christ died for sinners. And Paul would say, of whom I am chief. And Paul knew this love of God. And he said, nothing, in Romans 8, he says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And he goes on to sort of give a list. But the important part is to know that when we have the true love of Christ in us, this agape love in us, that nothing can separate us from that. God's love is there. Spurgeon says this, to feel, to feel God's love is very precious. But he says, to believe it when you do not feel it is noblest. See, we have feelings in, in, in our flesh. And our feelings lead us astray. Our feelings will take us this way, they take us that way. Feelings will convict us of guilt. Feelings will make us happy, maybe sad. We have feelings that, that can lead us all over the place. And sometimes in our life, we may say, man, I just don't feel that God, that God is here. Where are you, God? I'm going through a difficult time. Where are you, Lord? 
I don't feel you by me. But we know as believers, we don't stand on the feelings. We stand on our belief. We stand on the promises that God has given. And so even when I don't feel God's presence, and I'm in a dark place, I know that there's light at the end of the tunnel because God has promised that he is with me. And God will walk me through that. And God will bring me where I need to be. So to feel God's love is precious. That's a wonderful thing. When you feel the, the love of God, the agape love of God, I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable in a person's life. When you really sit down and reflect on, on yourself and who you are and who he is, and then to think he loves me, that's an amazing thing. But I can believe that when I don't always feel it. He goes on, 17, 18, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. Isn't that amazing? As he is, so are we in this world. He's saying we can be that reflection of God in this world. As you sit and examine yourself, as you sit and look at your life, can you ask yourself the questions of things like, what would Jesus do? That was a, a, a cliche that was sort of out a while ago. I, I like it, by the way. And Can you say, I, I'm really doing what Jesus would have me to do? I'm really saying what Jesus would have me to say. I'm really behaving the way that Jesus would have me to behave. The neat thing about Jesus as you read through the Gospels, and though it doesn't say it, but you can, you can infer it as you look at him, he was never afraid to look someone in the eye and talk to him. If it was confronting of sin, if it was blessing, if it was compassion, if it was grace, mercy, if it was anger, bitterness, he was never afraid to look at somebody in the eye because he had the love in him that motivated him on all those things. When Jesus would correct people, you speak the truth. The one that you're with now is not your husband, but another. He didn't hang his head in shame as he said that. He was loving that woman and he was telling her the truth. As he confronted the, the Pharisees in the world, he didn't cower down. He stood right up to them, looked them in the eye, and said, you brood of vipers. See? When we have the power of Christ and we have the love of Christ that motivates us, we don't need to hide behind things. We can stand boldly, as the scripture says, in these things. We can have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we. Are you reflecting Jesus in your life? Are you reflecting God in your life? When you ask yourself that question, when people are looking at me, who are they seeing? Are they seeing a legalistic Pharisee? Are they seeing a hypocritical Christian? Are they seeing somebody who lies and deceives? Or are they seeing as he would have said of David, someone after my own heart? I want people to look and see Jesus. We're at the beginning of a full moon, or I guess we've been in a full moon a day or so now. But you all know, right, that the moon doesn't generate its own light. Right? But that full moon in the middle of the night Early in the morning, I got up at like four in the morning a couple nights ago, and my whole backyard was lit up. It's reflecting the light of the sun. What are you doing? Are you reflecting the light of the sun? 
Do you illuminate the relationships you're in and the uh, the people you're around with the presence of Christ? Or are you like those Pharisees? That people sort of dread coming into your presence. I want to be a full moon for Jesus. I don't want to be a crescent moon. I don't want to be that little sliver. I don't want to be a half moon. I want to be a full moon. I want people to see Jesus in me and in my life. And so when the day of judgment comes, I don't need to cower in fear because everything that that I've done, past, present, and future, because I have this relationship with Jesus Christ, has been poured out on Christ on the cross. He's paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. See, I don't need to cower in front of of God. I don't, I don't need to worry as long as, I, as I'm praying and as long as we have that self-control and we're going to read about this in a, in a couple minutes. I don't need to worry about those things on the judgment day because Christ has done it all. And so the reason for our love to Jesus, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. That means we didn't initiate that. Spurgeon said, every man that was ever saved had to come to God, not as a lover of God, but as a sinner. We don't come to God as a lover of God. Oh oh Lord, I love you. Accept me into your... We come to God as a sinner seeking forgiveness for our sins. And then we believe in God's love to us as a sinner. Not as a self-righteous. Many people say, oh, I've got to clean up my act first. I've got to get this right first. I gotta... No, 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 no. Not biblical at all. We come to Jesus as a sinner, seeking forgiveness for our sins. We look at the love that he has for us as a sinner, and we respond to him in that. I like this one quote of, of Spurgeon. This one always, I think, makes... Uh, conservative, legalistic conservatives sort of tense up because they don't really understand the full grace of God. But it says, Jesus loved you when you lived carelessly, when you neglected his word, when the knee was unbent in prayer. Ah, he loved some of you when you were in the dancing saloon, when you were in the playhouse, eh? even when you were in the brothel. He loved you, loved you when you were at hell's gate and drank damnation at every drop. He loved you when you could not have been worse or further from him than you were. Marvelous, O Christ, is thy strange love. Agape love. He loved you when you were the worst of the worst. When you were as far as you could get from him, he loved you. And that's where he calls you from. And that's where we start our journey to him from. Our love of God is always a response to the love that he has for us. He initiates, we respond. We cannot initiate agape love on our own. And that's an unconditional love back towards God. We don't come to God and say, God, I'll love you if this. Yeah, I've worked in the prison system a long, long time, and, and I had a man one time, and this is sometimes how Christians work, and this is sort of a, an extreme thing, but you can get it because maybe you've done this in your life with different circumstances. 
But this man was praying for a piano. He wanted to learn how to play piano, so he wanted one of those little electric pianos. And, and he prayed for it and prayed for it, and he was trying to talk people into buying him a piano and, and this and that, and it didn't come, and all of a sudden he wasn't coming to, to chapel anymore. And I saw him and I said, um, why, why aren't you coming to chapel? God hasn't answered my prayer. I've been praying for this piano for a year, and, and he hasn't given it to me, and, I, and I'm not... God isn't listening to me anymore. And it's like, okay, so we're putting contingencies on God. Well, I don't know, it's probably about a year later, all of a sudden he, he popped back into church and, oh, I got a piano. Somebody had bought him a piano. Now he was good with God because he got what he wants. Are you that type of Christian? That you barter with God? If you don't get what you want, you're angry. But when God does what you want, then you're back in play. Sort of a, a sad existence. Sad reason to do the things that we do sometimes. Our love is a response to God. Our unconditional love towards God. Father, why do I get cancer? I've lived my life faithfully for you. I give in the offering. I do Bible studies. I. Why me? Some get angry with God, walk away. That's not the love that God has placed in you. God, wherever you bring me, I know that you are with me. Whatever journey I'm on, I know that you will take me. Use me, Lord, wherever I'm at. Let me reflect your presence in the lives of others. Let me reach out to others the way that you have to me. We only respond to what God does in our life. See, we get it wrong in Sunday school sometimes. We teach kids this. All you need to do is love Jesus and come to him. All you need to do is love Jesus and come to him. And it's not true. The way to be saved for any man, woman, or child is to recognize that we are far from God, that we are sinners in our life, and to trust Jesus for the pardon of that sin in our life. We don't even have the capability of loving Jesus until his love comes into us. And then we trust in him with that love as a fruit. Galatians will tell us about this in just a moment. People say, oh, I want to love God more. I, I just get frustrated because I want to love God more. You know, I, you know, I tell myself, this is the way that you love God more. You sit back and you look at the love that God has for you. You look at that, what he saved you from. You look at how grievous your sins were and, and he sent his son to die for you. And when you see that great love that he has offered, you can't help but love him back. You can't help but love him more. Yeah, yeah, but you don't understand. This person rubs me the wrong way. Really? Okay. Nobody ever rubbed Jesus the wrong way, did they? I read through the gospel sometimes and think, why didn't Jesus just point his finger and say, poof, you're gone. I've had it with all of you. Poof. No. Well, you don't know what they said. Oh, really? Jesus says, oh, they lied about me. But he had that love for them. So we forget about our own love towards him and we just look at his love towards us and as we look at his love towards us 
experience that's going to come to us. If somebody in your life, just a friend or somebody, has ever just done something, maybe it's not even a friend. I know when, when Tuggers were, you know, there was gifts that were given and the outpouring that she said, I can't believe these people did this for me. I can't believe a church would do this for us. They can't help but see the love of God in our life. If you want to live more like Christ, think more like Christ, be more like Christ, think about what you received from Him. I just want to close with two short chapters, or two short things. 1 Corinthians 13, the first few. Read through this at home. Do I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love? I am a, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all not and have all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could even move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So you got quite a list there of the righteous Christian. I got faith. I read the Bible. I give my stuff to help the poor. I do all these things. But Paul says if you do not have love, you're just out of tune. If you do not have love, it profits you nothing. If you do not have love, it is useless in the eternal schemes of things. Galatians tells us this as a fruit as we think of these things, because, you know, a, a person can be a spiritual dwarf. You know, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as spiritual giants, right? Oh, I read the Bible, I know this, I know all these things. But we can be a spiritual dwarf because we lack love in our life. Because we lack the love of Christ. One may know the word. You may be able to quote scriptures, circles around anybody. You may say, I attend every service. You may say, I give... 10% or more of, of everything I have. You can say I give all these things. I even got gifts of the Spirit that I can use. You can have all these things, but you can still be like Cain. You know the story of Cain and Abel, right? You can still be like Cain, giving the fruits of your hands and not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And just as we've talked about at the very beginning, how do people see God by the love that you show? How do people see hate? Because as Christians, we don't use that word hate. They see it in our character. They see it in our father, the devil. Bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, rivalries. All those things, all those ungodly things. You can mouth all you want, I love my brother. But if you truly don't, you're a liar. You can sit and worship and say, I love the Lord, I love Jesus, I love God. But that person I have no time for. 
John says, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. John says in his gospel, this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why does John spend so much time in his gospel and so much time in these epistles about love? Because we get it wrong. We get it way wrong. That's why he says, when you bring your gifts to the altar, when you bring your gifts to God, in other sense, and there remember that you have wronged somebody or somebody has wronged you, it says, leave your gift there, go make that right. Then come and bring your gifts. Because this may surprise you, God doesn't need what we have. He doesn't need what we have. He desires that we use our gifts for him, but he doesn't need what we have. He says, I don't want your polluted gifts. I want the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to go make it right with your brother. I want you to love your brother. I want you to show grace to your brother. I want you to to show mercy. Grace is what? Receiving what we do not deserve, right? Somebody says, here, I want you to have this gift of $100. Well, what did I do for that? You didn't do anything. I want you to have this gift of $100. That's sort of like a, a picture of grace. We're receiving something that, that we do not deserve. Mercy is the opposite. Mercy is my little cop story that when they pull me over and they give me a warning, I deserve a ticket. But they show mercy. God says show grace to people. Give them the love they don't deserve. Give them the respect that they haven't earned. Give them the attention that they're seeking. Show mercy to them. Well, maybe they deserve some stuff, but you're not going to do that. You're going to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. That's God's desire for us. He says, then when you get that right, bring your gifts to me because he says, I don't want you stinking offerings if your heart's not right with me. Is your heart right with God?